Simon Deacon, thanks for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today on the very topical debate of Britain's membership of the European Union and the forthcoming referendum. Welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. You are Director of the Centre for Business Research and Professor of Law at the University of Cambridge. It's long been argued that membership of the EU and its predecessors would entail a loss of sovereignty for the UK. Why is that? Well, because we're in the EU, we have to observe European Union law, and that prevails over UK domestic law where there's a conflict. So, in a sense, when we vote uh, our government in, when we, we vote in a general election, Parliament passes laws. Parliament isn't completely free now from external influence, and whatever laws Parliament passes, is if they conflict with European law, in the end they will be struck down. So the argument goes that participation in the EU involves giving up parliamentary sovereignty and also our national sovereignty, transferring powers to unaccountable institutions in Europe. And so those unaccountable institutions, it's been claimed that the institutions of the EU are, as you said, undemocratic and unaccountable compared to those of the British state. But is that true? Do we make too much of the EU being unaccountable? I think the first thing to say is that the EU isn't a state. The EU is a transnational entity, subject to its own rules, but subject to the rule of law, and has a complex relationship to the individual member states, including the UK. So it is true that European Union law elevates certain legal rules above UK legal rules, but it does that for reasons which are connected to the nature of our own democracy and are connected to our participation in international relations and global trade. So is there a way of saying that one law is better than another, one law is superior? Because you have to work your way through both legal systems, the British legal system and the European legal system. Well, the paradox of our own constitution is that because it's unwritten or more accurately uncodified and because of the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, I would argue that we lack checks and balances which are taken for granted in other European democracies. And we, in fact, give too much power to parliament. We are insufficiently protected from what is, in effect, what a Conservative politician, Lord Hailsham, in the 1970s called an elective dictatorship. We elect our MPs and for five years or so, especially now we have fixed-term parliaments, Parliament has tremendous power. What the EU does, what EU law does, is inject into UK law, into English law, elements of constitutional checks and balances, in particular human rights protections, which we very badly need, which we would have to reinvent if we left the EU. If we were to leave the EU, I don't think that we would be in a situation of greater democracy and greater accountability, because we'd just be going back to our unreformed old constitution. But some people call that unreformed old constitution the unwritten constitution of the British state, and they go back to the origins of that being the rule of law in Magna Carta. And people call it stable. Is that still relevant today? So Magna Carta is interesting because it's in some ways the origins of the idea that executive power should, should itself be subject to law. So there's no power above the law. But Magna Carta, although it is a legal instrument, is in a sense is equivalent to an act of parliament, isn't constitutionally embedded. So the provisions of Magna Carta themselves can be overridden by later acts of parliament. And that's happened. So Magna Carta is a good example of the weakness of the British constitution. No parliament is bound 
bound by its predecessors, nor can it bind its successors. Even fundamental rules, like those contained in Magna Carta, can be whittled away, can be amended, can be even be overturned by what later parliaments do. And that, I think, produces a situation where we are, to a surprising extent, subject to an unconditional, unqualified parliamentary power that can be exercised in a way which is detrimental to human rights. The judiciary is separate from our parliament. We have separate institutions of state. So how then can the political sphere influence the legal and judicial sphere? Surely they're separate. Well, the judges have said that they respect the notion of parliamentary sovereignty, so they reject the idea of embedded constitutional rules in this sense. So even rules about how law are made, the Parliament Acts, it appears a subject really to a political constraint, not to a legal constraint in this sense. Magna Carta, for example, amongst other things, says that we shouldn't buy or sell justice. To no one will we sell justice. Justice is not a commodity. And that's a very important aspect of the rule of law, that you can't simply buy justice. It's beyond the market. This provision in Magna Carta has been ineffective in the face of, for example, recent reforms which are, in effect, marketising and privatising our justice system. Now, that's just one example of the way in which the rule of law can be undermined by, in this particular case, acts of parliament which are motivated by a very particular ideological position, broadly speaking a a neoliberal, almost a market fundamentalist position, which calls into question certain key features of the rule of law. Our constitution is no protection against the erosion of the rule of law in this sense. And can you give examples of that marketisation of the law, of our systems? Is it something that encroaches incrementally on us, or something we can say, well, look, that's when it changed. It it does happen incrementally, but to take a a practical, concrete example of what I mean, access to an employment tribunal now depends upon the ability of of a claimant to pay several hundred pounds, often more than that, approaching a thousand pounds to access an employment tribunal to bring a claim. We're marketising justice, we're restricting justice to the well-off, and we're penalising the poorest in our society by denying them access to the courts. This is one example. There are others of the introduction of market principles into the justice system. When we make access to justice dependent upon means in that sense. We're talking here about fundamental social rights, which protect the poor, protect those without means, protect victims of discrimination. These involve fundamental social rights, the right to protection against discrimination, the right to for example, a living wage, other employment law rights which are respected in international conventions, in international treaties. Many people regard them as fundamentally important human rights. Most constitutions in mainland Europe respect these rights and they can't be taken away by statute and they can't be made subject to means in this sense. But in this country, they can be. We can remove access to the means by which these social rights and human rights can be enforced and it's not a breach of our constitution now. Nor so Because we're making people pay. We are that's right. Now, unfortunately, the EU isn't a complete answer either, because the issue of whether these reforms to employment tribunals also infringe European law has gone before our own courts. And so far, they've also rejected an argument that European law prevents this from happening. So the EU isn't perfect either. And I think it's very important to take that point on board. What we need here is a constitutional settlement in this country, which respects human rights and introduces checks and balances. Brexit would make things worse in this respect. It would take 
take us back to an ancien regime, almost a pre-modern constitution. This is not to say the EU is perfect. The EU itself can be improved. And I think the role of human rights within European Union law can be strengthened. But Brexit is a step backwards, not a step forwards in this respect. So that's a myth, if you like, of the Brexit campaigners, that there is something that we can go back to that is somehow better. But you say that EU laws are essentially of two types. The first consists of rules aimed at creating the single European market, and the second are human rights protections. If we take the first protection of creating the European market, how do they work? So if if we're part of the EU, in order to access a single market, we have to abide by the rules of that market. Those rules are about creating access to the market. They're about free movement for labour and capital. They're also about standardisation. So goods can be sold across the whole of the EU consistently and fairly. Now, without those rules, there wouldn't be a single market space. We undoubtedly benefit from participation in, in that single market space. It's a positive sum game. Everybody gains. But without the rules, this couldn't happen. Markets are not self-forming. Markets require legal rules. They require transnational legal rules. Now, if we were not inside the EU, many, not all, but many of those rules would be, in effect, binding on us anyway. We'd have to agree them. They could either be, in effect, imposed on us through WTO membership. In some cases, not all, but in other cases, we'd have to renegotiate the terms upon which we had access to the single market, and we'd have to enter into bilateral negotiations with third-party countries outside the EU about the basis on which we trade with them. Now, many of these rules about market access, about standardisation, we almost certainly would end up accepting anyway. Now, the one big exception, I think, is free movement of labour. If we're in the EU and in the single market, which would involve, as many people have recently said, being a bit like Norway, for example, in the single market, but in effect, the European economic area, not in the EU, Norway accepts free movement of labour. Now, we might not have to accept that, of course, if, if there were a Brexit, but I think it's important to point out that we would still want to be part of an international um, economic system where there's free, a certain amount of free movement for labour and for capital. We wouldn't be able to put, if we wanted to stay within that global trading system, a complete ban on free movement of labour. And at the moment, it appears slightly more people enter the UK to work from outside the EU under our immigration law than from inside the EU. So exiting the EU will not stop migration into the UK for work purposes. And presumably if we exit from Europe or Brexit, then we are still going to be bound by rules of trade. If not, we wouldn't be able to trade with European nations. We'd have to recreate these legal regimes one by one, bilateral negotiations with third party countries, and renegotiate in due course a new basis for participation in the single market, which would involve accepting many of these rules. So in a sense, it's a purely formal distinction. At the moment, we're bound by those rules because they're part of EU law. In future, in effect, we'd have to accept them unless we wanted to close the UK off from participation in global trade. Well, that's a fairly bold statement. The second type of EU rules are human rights protections of the kind contained in the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, general principles of EU law and various parts of treaties, directives and regulations. Now, you argue that these are, on the whole, precisely the type of laws which British ministers should be constrained by. So are they, in reality, able to interpret or opt out of them? 
Democracy is not just about electing MPs once every five years into a position where they can more or less do what they want through the executive power. Ministers have said publicly in a Brexit campaign that they feel they've been prevented by European law from doing things which they regard as being in the public interest. It's not clear exactly what they mean by that, but I think that ministers should feel constrained, not just by their own judgment, but by certain principles of human rights law, from doing certain things. Now, what EU law does is impose upon ministers the first type of constraint we just discussed. We have to sign up to the rules of a European and global trading regime. Okay, but the second type of rule which we see in EU law influencing the UK is protection of basic human rights. And these are rules contained in the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU. And that is part of EU law, and it does have an impact on UK law. And in many cases, has an impact in those areas of UK law where we do not adequately protect human rights, in particular social and employment rights. So when ministers who support Brexit say they feel constrained by EU law from doing things they would like to do, I think we need to know exactly which rules they feel are constraining them. And I think that if we had a modern codified constitution, they would be constrained by exactly that type of rule. In the absence of that codified constitution, EU law is the best we've got. It isn't perfect, but we certainly shouldn't lose it. And there would be no going back to some previous order before we had the EU Charter of Human Rights. We couldn't suddenly start scribbling down our own treaties for our own human rights. How how likely do we think that is? At at the moment, the same people who are campaigning for Brexit and saying they feel constrained by EU law rules are also some of those people who are arguing for the repeal of the Human Rights Act, which, by the way, is not underpinned by EU law except indirectly. It derives from, ultimately, another non-EU legal instrument, the Council of Europe's European Convention on Human Rights. But I don't think it's practical to imagine that Brexit would lead to the type of constitutional settlement I'm I'm advocating. It's more likely to lead to the opposite, to the removal of those limited protections of our human rights we enjoy because of EU law. If we look perhaps at an illustration of this, there's been a lot of controversy over the adoption of TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership by the EU. How does that work and how would we stand if we exited? So let's say that we, for the sake of argument, don't like TTIP because we think that it undermines, for example, the National Health Service and gives too many powers to to multinational companies. TTIP will be discussed and debated in the European Parliament. The European Parliament has a critical say over the adoption by the EU of TTIP. If we were not in the EU, there's no guarantee, it seems to me, that that we could stop TTIP. But at present, because the argument is mediated by European institutions, British opponents of TTIP can join with opponents of TTIP in other European countries and make their voice heard just as effectively, maybe even more effectively, than would be the case if there were a national debate within each EU member state. So I think translating that TTIP debate to European level strengthens those who regard TTIP as an attack upon democracy. So you almost seem to be saying the same, whether it's human rights or trade treaties, that it's better to come to the table and be part of the debate than being on the outside and then just having to accept these terms after they've been passed by the EU. That's right. So democracy is not just about voting. Democracy is about deliberation. It's about voice and participation. It is open to us as citizens of the UK to engage in this process of deliberation at European level where it really matters. Because in a globalised world, these things are not any longer realistically just matters for individual nation states. So I don't accept the argument that returning formally some of these 
decision-making powers to our own parliament and to our own government will better protect us from the effects of globalisation where they're negative. I think it makes things much more difficult. And so if we move on, Simon, to your conclusion, you actually say that a British exit would return the UK to its pre-modern constitution, the consequences of which are hard to predict. So what might happen if the Brexit vote to leave campaign with the forthcoming referendum, if we just say we're going to leave? Would that leave us with any foundation at all in the legal systems? So my argument is that Brexit is not just a debate about economics and it's not a question of trading off sovereignty for economic growth. In fact, it's very difficult to predict what the economic effects of Brexit would be. It's much easier, much more straightforward to see what the constitutional and legal effects would be. I think they'd be negative and I think they would be anti-democratic. You say that the EU's had a recent neoliberal right-leaning turn. What do you mean by that? So I've said so far that being in the EU makes it possible to engage the forces of democracy and of human rights against trends within globalisation which might undermine our democratic rights. Now, I think that nevertheless the EU's not perfect. The EU contains human rights protections, contains the rules for creating a single market, in many ways creates more social rights than UK law would do without the EU. But there are also elements within EU law which are consistent with the market fundamentalist neoliberal agenda, and they've been coming to the fore over the past decade. So there has been a tendency within EU law in particular through judgments of the European Court of Justice, to elevate economic so-called freedoms over social rights. Now, therefore, I'm not saying that the EU is perfect. But what, what I would say is that leaving the EU is not an answer to this particular problem. If we leave the EU on the grounds that the EU is becoming too neoliberal, then we simply give up any possibility of influencing the EU in a more socially democratic direction. And that won't really help us, because at the end of the day, we will still be subject to the influence of the EU to a very large extent, even if we're formally outside it. But then it also gives the Brexit camp what they want. If there's just a near miss, just a fraction in it, in a way... People are saying, commentators are saying, that the Brexit camp will have won because there will in fact be no overwhelming support for Europe. Let's think about what the Brexit debate is about. In a way it's about Britain's position, but it's also about the European Union. And many of the supporters of Brexit have said they do not just want Britain to leave the EU, they want the EU project itself to disintegrate. Some of them have been explicit about this. And what they particularly, I think, want to see happen is they want to see the, the disintegration of the social dimension of the EU and its replacement by a single free trade zone, which wouldn't have any social regulations at all in it. It would just be about trading. It would just be about market access. So the bigger agenda behind the Brexit campaign is to take the UK out in a more neoliberal direction, but also to change the EU in a more neoliberal direction and to confirm its neoliberal move. I think a Brexit vote would have negative implications for Britain. In the short run, it might actually help the EU to remain socially progressive because the UK would no longer be influencing European rules, but I don't think that would, would last for, for very long. I think that the best hope for a socially progressive EU, which combines commitment to free trade with protection of social rights, is for the UK to remain within, but for the debate we're having about Brexit to be the occasion for a rethink about the nature of British and also European constitutionalism. Well, that brings us on neatly to my last question. Do we need a constitution in Britain? We need to have a different constitution in Britain. We need to have a codified constitution which does explicitly protect 
social and other human rights. The European Union also needs to have a constitution. It needs to have a constitutional settlement which at international transnational level strikes a different balance between social rights and economic rights. But that debate will ultimately have to be played out within the EU. It cannot be played out in each of the individual member states and it cannot just be played out here in the UK. So those of us who believe in the case for human rights, the case for participative democracy and for social rights should be making a reasoned case for remaining in the EU EU on constitutional and human rights grounds, not just by reference to economic grounds. And to perhaps have more progressive thoughts in the future. That's right. So the Brexit debate is just part of a continuing debate about the nature partly of the British polity, but also of the European polity. What's at stake here is much more than Brexit. What's at stake is a nature, the future of the EU itself. Simon Deacon, thanks for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today on the forthcoming referendum on Europe. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Bonnie.